This is Case Closed, crime stories from the golden age of radio. They were born at the same hour on the same day of the same parents. And they were identical in beauty and talent. Only one was deadly, but the other was not. And I couldn't tell which was which until I found a green purse, a fresh corpse, and a pair of dancing hands. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Dancing Hands. The telegram I found stuck in the mail slot when I got back to my office after a long and roundabout day read. Enclosed, find a $50 money order. I want you to investigate a man. A table is reserved for you at the saddle club where I work. Come in time for the second show at 11, important. It was signed Beth Tyler. So at a quarter to 11, with 50 bucks worth of inspiration behind me, I drove over the Coenga Freeway and out Ventura to the saddle club, which pretended to be old English by showing its beams through a flagstone facade. I went in the carefully rough-hewn oak door, and even before my eyes became adjusted to the cozy lack of candle power inside, Neil Redmond, owner and operator of the place, glided toward me sporting his genial host smile, which tonight was even more forced than usual. How are you, Marlo? It's been a long time. Business a pleasure, Phil. It's always a pleasure to come to the Saddle Club, Neil. I've even got a reservation. You know my food better than that, Marlo. Uh-huh. <laughs> Just don't let it get rough, will you? Come on, I'll find your table out front. I want you to see this show. A pair of twins and a twin piano act that's sensational. Yeah? Edie and Beth Tyler. Oh, here, how's this? Fine. Incidentally, uh, Edie will be the one on the left. With their twins, what's the difference? Funny. Edie may be Mrs. Redmond one of these days. Oh. Redmond, but you are wanted on the phone, sir. Uh, get the number, George, and I'll call back. This gentleman said you would talk to him, sir. It is uh, Mr. Paul Cedar. Paul Cedar. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Excuse me, Marlowe. Uh, this is important. Redmond reacted to the name Cedar like a punch in the nose. But I figured that was none of my business, which was more than I could say for a flabby, dull-faced character at the next table who followed the nightclub owner all the way out of the room with a pair of watery red eyes, which he deliberately avoided turning in my direction. But at that point, an MC stepped out on the stage, and so I stopped worrying about Flabby in favor of the first look at my client. The Saddle Club is proud to present its second show of the evening, featuring the incomparable piano stylist, Edie and Beth in Dancing Hands. Here they are, ladies and gentlemen. Bring them up. Ah! Curtains parted on the stage, set with an oversized full-length mirror, which reflected a grand piano, a black vase of yellow flowers, and a tall brunette with a wry, crisp waistline, who touched up a piled-high hairdo, put on a pair of long black gloves, checked her hemline, and sat down at the piano. And she ran through an involved arpeggio while her reflection in the mirror looked on in admiration. It was an old but cute routine, and the illusion was perfect because the Tyler twins were practically identical. I took another look at Flabby, whose face was pushed up in a nasty leer. He stood up, dropped his cigarette into his drink, and tossed a crumpled bill down on the table, just as the lights went out for the trick part of the act. On the dark stage, two pairs of purple hands danced over two glowing silver keyboards. It would have been good, except that the pair of hands on the right, which belonged to Beth, suddenly stopped in midair. 
and hit blue notes like a nine-year-old at her first recital. When the lights came up again, my client's face was as white as middle sea. And the flabby character oozing a victorious smile was on his way to the door. Well, they wrapped it up fast after that. And Beth ran into the wings, leaving Edie to take the bow alone. The band took over in a hurry and brought things down to normal. So as couples moved down to the dance floor and George the waiter headed for my table, I sat back and waited for that message from my client. Here you are, sir. Compliments of the house. Oh, thanks. Any message with this? No, sir. Just that Mr. Redman had to leave. Oh, thanks, George. I sipped the double scotch and wondered if I should take the initiative and contact my client. When the message I'd been waiting for came, good and loud. I jumped up, shoved my way through the gaping dancers to the dressing room hallway behind the stage. A gang of club personnel was bunched in front of a door, obviously locked, labeled Edie and Beth Tyler. Hey, what's the matter? It's one of the twins. She screamed. We got to get in. That door's locked. Break it down. But I... Get out of the way. It's Edie. It's Edie. Wait a minute. Hold it. She's all right. Clear out and give her a chance. Come on. Outside, everybody. Beat it. That means you two. Come on. Out. Here, Miss Tyler. Take it easy. You're all right now. Come on. Sit down. Tell me what happened. I don't know for sure. I was worried about Beth. I came back and didn't see her anywhere. Then I heard a noise in here. It was dark. I came in and, and someone grabbed me. Man? Yes. I don't know who it was. Mm-hmm. I screamed. He knocked me down. Then locked the door. Got out through the window there. Who are you? I'm Philip Marlowe, a private detective. Your sister hired me to investigate a guy. I was to meet her here after your number and find out about it. Any idea what's up? No, I can't imagine. But gee, Beth has been terribly upset ever since last night. Oh? What happened last night? Well, for one thing, my purse was stolen. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't see why that should upset her. See, there was nothing in it but $12 in my makeup stuff. Where's Beth now, do you know? No. I haven't seen her since she ran off the stage. I'm not even sure she came in here. No, she was here all right. She dropped one of her gloves. You're still wearing both of yours. Where do you girls live? Maybe she went home. Well, Beth has a cottage out on Hazeltine. 4179. They don't live together? How come? Well, gee, Mr. Marlowe, just working with Beth is hard enough. She's so sarcastic. <laughs> okay, I'll wear my thick skin. Uh, one more thing, Miss Tyler. Do you happen to know where Neil went? Neil's gone? Mm-hmm. Gee, that's funny. He always stays till the place closes. Oh, he must be coming right back. I'll take a look. Then I'm going out to see your sister. Sarcasm at all. I spent ten minutes questioning the help on the whereabouts of the boss and got nothing but double talk for answers. So since I was still carrying Beth's glove around with me, I dropped it in my pocket and went outside to my car. I'd opened the door and slid far enough under the wheel so I couldn't back out before I realized that the dough-faced flab was already there on the seat. His right hand wrapped around something blunt and menacing in his sloppy jacket pocket. You better come on in. What are you doing in my car, blubber boy? Don't get sassy now, mister. And the name is Sippy. That's no improvement and that's no answer. All right. I, uh, saw you inside making with the big talk, so I says to myself, he's an interested party. I should look him up. Maybe we can... Do business together. All right, stay over there. What kind of business? I'm particular about the gutters I crawl in. It has to do with the twins inside there. 
You can get in touch with me later for further details. I got an angle, mister. You'll see when I leave. Yeah? When you tried to work that angle, you got to the wrong twin in the dressing room. Do you know that? I don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, Sippy, where can I reach you? You'll find out if you really know what's up. Don't try to follow me, though. I'll be seeing you. When Sippy slid out of the car and beat it, I made one move after him and then stopped cold. Because lying on the seat where he'd been sitting was a green leather handbag with the name Edie etched on it. I snapped it open. It had been stripped of everything but the scent of Amir and the smudged slip of paper that read Number 9 Arrow Motel, Lancashire Boulevard. So that was Sippy's address, and he had the stolen purse. But the why of all the commotion over 12 missing bucks was still the number one question mark. And I figured the best place for an answer to it was at Beth Tyler's. So I drove out to Hazeltine. But even before I stopped at number 4179, I heard the piano. I walked to the door and stood there a moment, listening. I eased it open. Slipped inside. Soft, indirect lighting accented the figure of the girl at the piano. The little waves of iridescent crimson chased themselves over the smooth, satin gown she played. Glossy, blue-black hair fell to her shoulders. The side of her burning cigarettes had a single plume of smoke into the still air. Just for a moment, I found it difficult to remember that she was my client. <clears throat> oh? You're, you're looking better, Beth. You're Philip Marlowe, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I dropped by to return your glove, among other things. Just put it there on the table for the other one. Where did you get it, Marlowe? In your dressing room at the club. Your sister tangled with an unidentified man who was hiding there after you left. While we're on that, why'd you shove off so fast? I was scared. How'd you know I'd find you? You're a detective. Remember? Mm-hmm. Look, if you want to burn up your retainer playing hide-and-seek, it's your business. Now, who's the guy you want me to check on? The flabby one who made you blow up tonight? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Why? Because I think my sweet twin sister is mixed up in something a little more serious than her usual scatterbrain escapades. Hmm. And the flabby guy is in on it because he has a green purse, right? How did you know that? He left it with me. Name is Sippy. He lives at the Arrow Motel, number nine. Knows something worthwhile about this business and he's anxious to sell it. All of which puts him a hop, skip, and a jump ahead of your detective. Now, tell me, why is everybody, including Neil Redmond, all wound up over one stolen purse? What's it all about, baby? I don't know, baby. Suppose you find out and tell me. Wouldn't have anything to do with the fact that Neil loves your sister and you love Neil, would it? Marlowe, I hired you to investigate a man, not to pry into my personal affairs. You'll get more for your money if I stop holding out on me. It's my money. Besides, I'm not holding out. Believe me. I'll try. Real hard. Well, as soon as I've got something, I'll call you. Where are you going now? Uh, my retainer entitles me to know, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. First to the club to find Redmond and get his side of it, and then I'll probably drop in on our chum, Sippy, at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire. Good. I'll uh, keep a light in the window for you. Oh, sweet. <laughs> also keep your door locked. From the inside, baby. 
As I drove down the dark, winding street toward Ventura Boulevard, I caught a flash in the rearview mirror of a station wagon behind me. It looked like a tail, so I opened up. But it stayed with me. When it swung out into the left lane to pass, it suddenly cut in front of me. I jammed on the brakes and the spotlight slashed at my eyes, and when my front wheel banged against the curb, I was already half out of the car. Stop right where you are, fella. Don't come one inch closer, I'll drop you. I switched off the spotlight and I saw a face the texture of a doormat over an embroidered purple shirt and orange tie. He had hand-tooled, high-heeled boots on and was topped off by a ten-quart cream-colored Stetson. But the doormat face was grim and the silver-barreled cold pistol in his hand looked right at home. I followed you up here from the saddle club. I don't know what your game is or why you're messing around and what don't concern you, but I am to find out mighty quick, so start talking. Okay. First, I resent being crowded off the road. Second, I resent a spotlight in my face. And third, I don't like pistols pointed at my stomach. So cool off, Jesse James. You're wasting your time and mine. You got it wrong there, friend. Paul Cedar don't waste his time, and you're going to find that out. Paul Cedar, huh? Yeah. Don't tell me you're all excited over a stolen purse with 12 bucks in it. $12? Yeah. Listen, clown, there's 30 grand missing somewhere between Redman and me, and I'm going to get it. 30,000? Yeah. Redman's a high roller, and that's okay with me. But he lost it fair and square in my joint over in Nevada, and I've been holding his markers much too long. So if I have to chalk that dough off to experience, it's going to be a pretty unpleasant experience for a certain party. Get me? Yeah, I get you. But you're shoving the wrong way, Longhorn. Somebody's trying to make a fool out of me, bright boy. And I don't stand for that. I'm liable to shove a lot of ways. And hard. So don't get underfoot. Or you're sure to get stepped on. So long, dude. <laughs> just a moment, we'll return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, tomorrow marks the anniversary of an important event in American history, the signing of the first peace treaty between the Indians and the Plymouth colonists. In commemoration of these events, CBS's Sunday night stars, Amos and Andy, will be found with a kingfish bearing the hatchet deeper than ever in their hopes and dreams. And CBS's own Jack Benny will be back again tomorrow with his special guest, Van Johnson. Invite some friends over. Sit back and enjoy the Jack Benny program. You can hear Amos and Andy every Sunday on most of these same CBS network stations and Jack Benny over them all. Now, with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Dancing Hands. When the Texan from Nevada galloped off in his trusty station wagon... I forgot all about Neil Redmond and headed instead for Sippy and his further details at the Arrow Motel on Lancashire, where Bungalow 9 turned out to be an all-alone green and white collection of clapboard that showed light, a half-open door, and nobody home to my knock. When I tried knuckles on wood again and still got only a faint echo for reply, I stepped inside. There in the center of an ivory-white throw rug and clamoring for attention like an only child at a family reunion was a wide and wet circle of red. There, the ugly splotches that narrowed as they got farther away trailed off until, finally, in the next room, the path ended where I expected it to. The quiet form of Skippy, sprawled over an upset chair and holding his hands tight against the red on his left side. When I got to him, he was going fast. Thirty grand. A lot of dough. Didn't know I was shooting that high. And the, the twins... 
One huh? what, Sippy? One of them. Did one of them do this? One. Two. Yeah. Yeah, Redman, he's very dead. Oh, no, Marlowe. I only found him a few seconds before you did. Yeah, and the rest of that run, you heard someone coming, you didn't want to be seen, so you ducked back out of sight, huh? I don't buy it, Redman, because for one thing, it's too pat. For another, how do you explain being here in the first place? Come on, fast. Okay, I'm here because I'm on a nasty chance. Like what? Like $30,000 I've got to pay in the next hour to a guy named Paul Cedar who's running out of patience in a hurry, believe me. About that, I do. I've already met the gentleman. Right now, Redman, we're talking about Sippy. Okay. Last night, I had things to do, so I gave Edie Tyler the money for the payoff to Cedar. A couple of minutes after she stepped out of the club, somebody roughed her up and got away with a purse and the 30 grand. You're a liar, Redman. Edie herself told me that purse only had 12 bucks in it. How come? Simple like, Marlowe. In my business, you never yell copper too soon or too loud. It doesn't pay. Mm -hmm. Now look, for the third time, Redman, you and Sippy, how do you figure? I don't know. He was at the club tonight, acting funny. When he left, I got a glimpse of Edie's green purse sticking out of his topcoat pocket. Later on, I saw him run away from a car near the club, so I followed. I ended up here a couple of minutes behind him, and that Marlowe was a truth, I swear. Would you do at the drop of a... Hey, wait a minute. Look, if you're telling the truth, I begin to get a different picture. And by that, I specifically mean a very talented but very sly dame named Beth Tyler. Oh, no, Marlowe. Why not? Because you love Beth's sister? Face it, Redmond, it doesn't add up any other way. Sippy here couldn't have stolen that purse from Edie. If he did, he'd have taken his dough and blow and not spent his time putting out feelers. But on the other hand, if Sippy happened to see Beth take it from Edie, empty it and toss it away, we've got another story, right? Huh. Because he wouldn't make a move until he knew how much he'd gotten away with. Exactly. But there he ran into trouble because he was trying to... Get close to Beth, and in doing that, he got mixed up and went for Edie instead, like tonight at the club. Sure. And the dying man's words just now about one twin. To which you can add the unpleasant fact that I personally ran off at the mouth when I was up at Beth's an hour ago. But she knew where to come for Sippy. Look, Redmond, it's got to run that way. I'm sure of it. Well, maybe you're right, Phil, but right or wrong, I'm still in the jam. So if you don't have any objections, I'm going back to my club now for a last try at raising that money again before Cedar shows. You mean you're going to face him, Neil, with or without it? I've got a model. You see, I own a fast club, all right, and I gamble a lot, too. But I don't welch on my markers no more than I knock over flappy little guys. You know what I mean, Phil? I think so. But don't fold now, Neil, because I might still be lucky enough to catch up to Beth Tyler and your money both before your time runs out. And right now, that means fast to a phone and a call to Edie, who might know which way a runaway twin would head. I'll see you, Neil. <laughs> was at an all-night mobile gas station a block away. As I dialed Edie's number, a thought hit me. Maybe Beth wouldn't head anywhere. Maybe she'd just stick around. <laughs> Hello? Edie, this is Marlowe. Seen anything of Beth? No, I haven't. But why? What is it, Marlowe? Well, from where I stand, two things. First, your sister has the $30,012 that was in your purse last night. Oh? And second, she's just about it for a sloppy around the edges murder. Now, look, have you any idea where Beth would head if she had to get out of town in a hurry? No, I don't, Marlowe. Oh, well, maybe somebody up around her place does. I'll call you later. Marlowe, wait. Are, are you sold on this? I mean, about the things you said Beth did? Just about, Edie. But for your sake, let's hope I'm wrong. All the way, honey. Goodbye. <laughs> 
driving fast back toward Beth's place on Hazeltine still left me enough time to think about a not-too-small detail that I'd completely overlooked. Thanks to me, the entire Los Angeles Police Department knew nothing about what was going on in and around the Saddle Club. Five minutes later, when I'd parked away from the dock and obviously deserted number 4179, I'd walked back and around to a pair of uncurtained French doors at the side. I knew that oversight is what is generally called a blunder. But in the next second, I knew it was nothing compared to the one I was making currently. If you so much as turn your head again, Marlowe, I'll kill you. Not like you did Sippy, please, Beth. I'd hate to go that way. Sippy was a mistake, Marlowe, believe me. I was rushed. So you shot and ran, Yes, but I didn't run too far. Because from where I stood, I could hear and see both you and Redmond and talking the whole thing over. When you knew that we'd caught on to your act, you decided to follow me and see where I was going before you made your next move. Is that it? Exactly. Now get inside. Go on, the door's unlocked. Mm. All right. Now get over there, near that closet, and don't turn around. Why not? Afraid of the look on my face when you shoot? Shut up, Marlowe. And stop being brave. Because unless I have to, I'm not going to kill you. After all, you've already served your purpose. Which I presume was getting mixed up in this mess just long enough to find out about Sippy for you. You presume correctly. Mm -hmm. Also, you talk too much. Now open that closet and get inside. All right. Go on. As you say. First, baby, one question. Did you do all this for the 30 grand alone? Or does it tie in with Neil Redmond and the way he feels about your sister, Reedy? It's a little bit of each, Marlowe. But as I said, you talk too much. So get in there and shut up. Getting out of Beth Taylor's half-inch thick old closet was like arguing with an umpire. You couldn't be subtle. So twenty tiring minutes went by and the heels on both my feet were numb before the paneling finally gave in and I was out and over to the telephone to put in a call to the police. It should have been made a long time ago. But then, even as I was halfway through dialing the numbers, I saw something on an end table nearby that made me slowly change my mind. It was the two black gloves that Beth wore in the Dancing Hands Act. And while I stared at them like they were alive and beckoning, I thought hard for what must have been a full minute. And then suddenly I knew that my next stop had to be the Saddle Club. As I parked at the Saddle Club, I saw light drifting out of Neil's office, which was something I had expected. Inside, I moved along a dark hall toward what I knew would be the trio of Neil Redmond, the Nevada Texan, and Eddie Tyler. The raucous voice of Paul Cedar was anything but happy. How stupid you think I am! Oh, oh, but Cedar, I'm telling the truth! Edie had the 30 grand, but somebody got it from her when she was on her way to you. That's a stinking line. You know it, Redmond. You never had the money. This whole thing's been a frame to stall me. And one way or another, I'm going to get you to admit that. No, you're not, Cedar. Uh, and if you don't drop that gun now, you're never going to do anything ever. Come on, let it go! Uh, All right. Now sit down and shut up and listen hard, because Redmond's telling you the truth. What? Paulo. You know where the money is? That's right. I also know who took it. Less than an hour ago, a little after I called you, Edie, Beth caught up to me and confessed the whole shebang, exactly as we figured it, Neil. You mean she admitted getting the money from Edie and using you to locate Sippy? That's right. But there's only one drawback to everything she admitted. None of it's true. What do you mean, Marla? I mean, Cedar, that Beth Tyler didn't steal your money from Edie here any more than she killed Sippy. I also mean that as far as I can tell, Beth Tyler was nothing more than a girl who played the piano got upset when a stranger named Sippy started to bother her. And I never saw the real Beth Tyler after she ran away from a piano in the club tonight. That she's dead and that you, Edie, have been posing as Beth all night because, one, you yourself stole Neil's money and, two, you murdered your sister as well. No! Yes, Edie, come on, admit it, it's true. No, no, it 
I guess it is at that, Marlowe. In Beth's body? In our dressing room. In the closet. I didn't want to kill her. But she found out that I had only pretended to be robbed when there was no one around. That Sippy had seen me scream and get rid of the purse myself. Sippy, who was only trying to muscle in on a deal, went to her by mistake, huh? Yes. That's how she knew what I'd done. When she confronted me in the dressing room, just before you came in, and said that she wouldn't stand by and let me do a thing like that to Neil, I lost my temper. You killed her, Edie. Yes, I did, Neil. And when Marlowe showed up after a scream, I said that someone had attacked me. And then I pretended to be both Beth and myself from there on to get out of the whole thing. And I... I almost did. But... But now I'm so sorry. Bad hours went by before the police had everybody's story, and Paul Cedar and the 30,000 was gone for Nevada, and Edie was gone for good. That left just Neil Redman and me alone and standing near the main bar in the club. Neil was doing his best to stay all in one piece. Well, Marlowe, it's been a tough night for you, hasn't it? Yeah, but a tough one for you, Neil. What with Cedar and the money and... The girls, Marlowe? Yeah. Yeah. Lisa came out right before the cowboy got too tough, thanks to you. Hey, tell me, Phil, how'd you know that Beth was dead and that Edie was both people all along? That was a couple of gloves, Neil, the ones they wore in their dancing hands act. You see, when I first met Edie in the dressing room, she was wearing hers, and one of Beth's was on the floor. Hey, pour me one, will you? Yes, sir. Okay. I took it, and later when I met what I thought was Beth, I returned it, and she put it with what we both thought was its mate. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. But a little while ago, when I got close to the gloves again, I saw that that couldn't be, that they were both for the left hand, Neil. Ah, then when Edie went to Beth's place to pass herself off as her sister, who she had already killed, she was smart enough to know that she should have only one glove around her. Yeah, but not smart enough to think about which glove it should be. From there, I worked backwards. Until you got to the three of us at the club and tried what you knew might be the right answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you were right, Phil, all the way. Yeah, but I was still gambling. If I had been wrong, Neil, I was giving the real Beth a long head start. Mm. It's always that way when you gamble, Phil. I know. Sometimes you pick right, sometimes wrong. Cards, mm-hmm. dice. <laughs> Even with twins. Good night, fella. When I finally got to my car, started out of the valley and back toward Hollywood, it was better than 8 o'clock in the morning. And here and there as I drove, I... I saw people who I'd never heard of and who, well, who'd never heard of me, stumbling outside after their morning papers. And I got to wondering what they were going to think when they read about a girl who had killed both her twin sister in a nightclub and a flabby guy in a motel who wasn't much good. Well, it was hard to say. And for myself, I was too tired to think. Or maybe I just didn't want to. The adventure.
Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, star Gerald Moore, and are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Lou Krugman, Ed Begley, Paul Fries, and Bert Holland. The special music is by Richard Arunt. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... When it started, it was simple. Just a lawsuit for damages. But before it was over, it was far from simple, and the damages were murder. All because of a red-headed woman, a ghostwriter with ambition and a match that burned with a bright green flame. With part of its star-studded Sunday nights devoted to shows named after great personalities such as Jack Benny, Lum and Abner, and Amos and Andy, CBS also goes to famous fiction for one of the brightest, most dramatic of its Sunday galaxy, The Adventures of Sam Spade. Created by the master hand of Dashiell Hammett, Sam Spade cuts a new and deadly caper with mystery, murder, and adventure on most of these same CBS network stations every Sunday. Join him tomorrow night. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Now, stay tuned for Gangbusters, which follows immediately over most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Mr. Smith's hat. Yes, we have that crime club story for you. Come right over. chair by the window. Comfortable? The book is on this shelf. Here it is. Mr. Smith's Hat by Helen Riley. A very intriguing story of a finger that puts its print on death. Let's look at it under the reading lamp. It was a bad day for New York City. The worst in a three-week period of early summer heat. And Inspector Christopher McKee was in his office at the Center Street Police Headquarters when the telephone rang. Yes, Inspector McKee talking, homicide. Yes, I was just going to talk to you about that. What? Homicide. How would you like to meet a freshly made corpse? Go ahead, mister. Well, go to 1142 West 16th Street. Gilbert Shannon's apartment. Mm -hmm. I'm not there now, but don't worry. You'll find me waiting for you. What's your name? Gilbert Shannon. (laughs) Well, I'll be... Of all the days to be hung up by a lunatic. Yes, Inspector McKee. Cassidy, get the local precinct for West 16th Street. I want them to check on a nut. Yes, sir. Hold a minute. Inspector McKee, homicide. Inspector. Inspector, my father's been killed. 
Murdered. Mm-hmm. All right, lady, give me the facts. Name, please. Gilbert Shannon, 1142 West 16th what? Street. What's that? 1142 West 16th Street. I just found him lying on the floor in a pool of blood. Your name, please. Julie. Will you please send someone over here right away, please? Please? Yes. Cassidy. Yes, Inspector. Never mind calling the local precinct. Get the medical examiner and order my car. I'm going up to that place myself. I walked in, Inspector. Dad never bothered to lock the door. He didn't believe he had anything worth stealing, except a lot of unpaid bills. And empty whiskey bottles, Miss Shannon, all over the place. We pleaded with him to give up this dingy apartment. Oliver and I begged him. Who's Oliver? My uncle, Inspector. Oliver Gold. The utilities man? Mm-hmm. Since my mother died two years ago, I've been living with him and Tams and his wife in their big house on East 54th Street. Mm. They wanted Dad to stay there, too, but he was stubborn. Why? He didn't want charity. He wouldn't let anyone help him. Not even Santa's Demora, his oldest friend. Not even me, his own daughter. Well, he seemed to have enough money for liquor, Miss Shannon. That wasn't very often. You see, Dad was a writer. Popular magazine stories. Sometimes he sold one. Then he... Yeah, yeah, I know. Must have been pretty tough on you and your mother. Well, let's see what happened here. Gilbert Shannon was sitting at that desk, working, his back to the door, when someone came in and cracked him on the... Go with a blunt instrument, not once, but six times. Please, Inspector. I'm sorry. It was a vicious crime done by a vicious person. Someone who feared or hated your father. But I don't know of anyone. It was also someone your father trusted and was expecting. What? The blows were all on the back of the head. In other words, when Gilbert Shannon's killer opened that door, your father knew who it was. He didn't turn around, but kept right on working. Inspector McKee, do you realize what you're saying? I always do, Miss Shannon. But it's crazy. Why, Dad's friends were the best in the world. They, they were always trying to do things for him. I, I can't think know of what... Know thine enemies, but beware of thy friends. A wise old saying, young lady. And in some cases of murder, I've known it to apply to relatives, too. Let's go. Where are you taking me? Home. I'd like to meet Oliver and Thames and Galt and Santos de Mora and maybe a man who commits murder and then likes to play ghost. Julie, I think you ought to go upstairs and lie down. I, I don't feel like a Tamsin. But she is so right, Julie, my dear. It is no good for you to hear all this talk about murder. Please, Santos. Like Gilbert, she is so obstinate. Inspector McKee, you haven't answered my question. Your question, Mr. Gold? About the newspapers. I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. What do you want me to do? Keep this matter private. Why? My position, of course. I'm vice president of Eastern Utilities. I don't want a scandal. Oh, what, uh... What are you afraid of? Gilbert Shannon was my brother-in-law. He was married to my sister. You haven't answered my question, Mr. Gold. I don't want his private life made public. It wasn't clean. Oliver. Well, Julie, let's face it. We've been ashamed of him for a long time, long before your mother died. Now, why should I be punished for his mistakes? He never did anything to hurt you. He wouldn't even take your pity. Now, there, there, Julie. Oliver didn't mean what he said. Well, Inspector, I make no promises. As an old-time citizen, I think it's bad business to interfere with the press. But my reputation... We'll worry about that later. Where were you this afternoon? At my office. Every minute? Until a quarter past twelve. And I had lunch, and after that... Now look here, Inspector. After lunch, Mr. Galt. I... I went for a walk. A long walk? I was back at my office at a quarter past two. Mm-hmm. Shannon was killed between twelve thirty and Inspector two. McKee, if you're intimating that How I... How about you, Mrs. Galt? Where were you? On Fifth Avenue, shopping. Buy anything? No. Meet anyone? No. Inspector, I thought you said the murderer was a man. 
Oh, did I? Never take a policeman literally, Miss Shannon, until he waves a pair of handcuffs. Now, Mr. DeMora. I was in Central Park all afternoon. For work, it was too hot. The weather. You meet anyone? Only the pigeons and the squirrels, Inspector. Yes, and they can't talk. Senor, it is quite useless to make up a case about us. Not one person in this room had a reason or a wish to dispose of Gilbert. You will prove nothing to the contrary. <laughs> nice going. Certainly stick together. I hope you don't have to hang together. Hello. Uh, one moment, please. For you, Inspector. Oh, thank you. Yes? Yes, Cassidy. Hmm? Where? Okay, put it through the lab. Oh? Good work. Have a check for type. Yes, yes, I'll tell them. But... Well, well, well. Everything comes to him who waits. What is it, Inspector? A few things to worry about, Mrs. Galt. The murder weapon has been found. Would one of you like to guess? I'm sick of this, Inspector. You have no right to make us all feel like... All right, all right. It was a hammer. The postman took it out of a mailbox on Lower Fifth Avenue. What? Samson. Don't look at me. I didn't go, lo- go below 50th Street. But it is quite ridiculous. If one desired to conceal or dispose Haste of a weapon... makes many mistakes. Now, Miss Shannon. Are you going to wave the handcuffs, Inspector? When you entered your father's apartment, did you go out again before I arrived? No. Well, somebody did. There was a fresh smear of lipstick on the inside doorknob. <laughs> You'd make a wonderful fingerprint. Huh? No comment? All right. Miss Shannon, the district attorney, has released your father's body for burial. You can make the arrangements. Thank you. It's so awfully kind of you. I'll be in touch with all of you. And don't try to leave town unless you're so hot you'd like to spend some time in the cooler. Well, Cassidy... The funeral services should be started any minute, sir. Are they all here? They are, Inspector, they are. In that first pew, Mr. Santos de Borda with Mr. Oliver Galt sitting next to him. Uh, Then it's uh, Mrs. Galt and Julie Shannon. Notice anything? It's heathen they are, Inspector McGee. The way they're rushing that poor fellow's body off the face of the earth. Yes, I saw that. And him not dead more than a few hours. It ain't decent. That's what comes of having daylight saving time. If the time was normal, now... Who's that fellow sitting over there in the last... You with his hat on. Uh, who, sir? Yeah. Oh, oh, another hayden. To be wearing a hat in the Lord's house. A hat that's so loud, it's loud enough for the racetrack and shabby enough for a funeral of its own. I told him to take it oh, off. Wait, wait a minute. He seems to be sobbing. Uh, why, so he does. And all the time I've been taking him from an old, no-good vagrant. Inspector, do you think he might be... Right, the... right. Getting out. Coming this way. And sure I'll be the devil's own witness. He ain't sobbing. He's laughing. And in a church. And at a funeral, too. Now, see here, you. Let you get him, Cassidy. Uh, what's the idea? Damon and Pythias, the spider on the fly. Who is less noble than man? You tell me. Nothing. And no one. In the beginning, there were serpents and vermin. And today, they walk like men. Excuse me, I have an appointment with a nightmare. Oh, 
He's crazy with the heat, the poor fellow is. You should have let him go, Inspector. He might be dangerous. Get after him, Cassidy. Uh, uh, oh, sure. Keep a tail on him. I want to know who he is and where he lives. Uh, but, but, but we could have asked him, sir, when he was sitting That's there. not all I want to know, Your Honor. Now get going and report to me at my office. I'll be there all evening. Inspector McKee talking homicide. Cassidy talking, sir. What'd you get? Uh, well, sir, I tailed that fellow to a broken-down tenement house on 10th Avenue. Hmm? He's got a room on the third floor. Good. What about his name? Uh, believe it or not, Inspector, it's John Smith. Uh, happened before. What else, Cassidy? Uh, well, sir, Smith stayed indoors for about an hour and a half. And when he emerged, it was only to lock himself up in a phone booth in the corner drugstore. Did you find out whom he called? I couldn't, sir, but I know he made two calls, Inspector. Yes? It was on the second one that I was able to catch a few words. What were they, Cassidy? Well, sir, there must have been an argument. Because all of a sudden, Smith's voice went up and he said, You'll be there in half an hour and don't keep me waiting. And that's all. Is it? Did Mr. Smith go to sleep in that booth? Oh, no, sir. He came out and walked straight uptown to Central Park. Uh, and that, Inspector, is where it happened. What? What happened? Well, sir, he was walking along a path near the 59th Street Lake with me about 50 feet behind him. Yes. Uh, something was wrong with the park lights because a whole row of them was out. And then... Mm-hmm. Now, go on, Cassidy. Well, sir, it was pretty dark. But, but I could see that hat. It shone like a beacon light on a dark and empty ocean. Never mind the poetry. Give me the facts to the point. Uh, yes, sir. Well, just before he turned off the path onto another one, he took off his hat. Yes, yes. Inspector McKee, I've been a member of the force for 32 years. I could retire and take my pension and live the good life of a peaceful man, but mm. I haven't done it. Instead, I have chosen to stay in the service of the department and devote myself entirely. Oh, no, you lost him. I couldn't help it, sir. He took off his hat. But, I... but if the park department had fixed those lights at the proper time... He was going I... to meet somebody and you lost him. I'm sorry, Inspector. I'm a broken-hearted We man. could have broken this case tonight. Close the books on it. Oh, well, have you had something to eat? No, sir. We'll get something and then come back here to my office. We'll have a good cry together. Hello, Thompson. Oh, Santos, what are you doing here? I came in for a lonely drink. I saw you sitting at this table. I am delighted. Oliver took Julie and me home after the funeral, and he went off to keep an appointment. Julie went to bed. I am glad they deserted you, Thompson, darling. It gives me an opportunity. Uh, Thompson, uh, please. But I am only holding your hand. Is it forbidden? Yes. We never know who might be looking. Well, let them look. Do I care? Well, I do. Thompson. But stop making a fool of yourself and leave me alone. It has not always been like this. It is now. I... I'm not ready to lose, Oliver. Lose? You do not lose something you do not want. That's how I feel about you, Sanders. I do not like to hear such talk. Yesterday it was different. You could not stand to leave with Oliver. I've changed my mind. And if you were a good sport... No, I am not a good sport when there is no good reason. Why didn't you tell me that you haven't got a penny to your name? Is it important? Well, shouldn't it be? Would you have me divorce Oliver for a marriage without money? At your age? I see. You would rather be with a man you do not love. He isn't impossible. A fish. With gold fins. When did you find this out about me? Last night at dinner. Oliver mentioned that your business was on the rocks and that you were going into bankruptcy. And immediately love flew out the window. I like my daily bread. And butter. You cannot do this to me when I have lost everything. It's unbearable. Uh, 
stop it, Casanova. Don't you know when you're licked? Julie. Why, Santos, I'm surprised at you. A lady wants to be with her husband, and you keep... Uh, what are you doing in this place, Julie? I thought you were home in bed. Did my father know about you two? Gilbert? Don't answer that. I think he did. And he was killed for knowing too much. Am I right, Tamsin? You're completely out of your mind. You were afraid that Dad might tell Oliver about you and Santos. That would have cost you a good home plus a lot of money. Julie, you are not making sense. Tamsin could not kill Stop him. being so loyal, Romeo. She just tore the balcony oh, down. Oh, I'm going home. A good place for you, Tamsin. Maybe you can find the hammer that used to be in that second floor closet. What? I looked for it tonight. It wasn't there. You might ask one of the servants about that. Shall I ask one of the servants about my lipstick, too? Look here, Julie. I've had enough of your nasty little insinuations. If anyone had a motive for killing your father, you did. He made your life miserable, and he destroyed your mother. He killed her. Tamsin? You know how she died. She didn't fall in front of that subway train. She threw herself. No. No. And the next time you feel like accusing someone of murder, think of the consequences. All of them. Good night. It is true, unfortunately, Julie. Gilbert was my oldest friend, but sometimes even I did not understand it. Come, I will take you home to Oliver's house. Yes, yes, two reservations on the midnight plane. Splendid. Mrs. Galt and I will pick them up at quarter to twelve. Thank you. Really? Oh, Samson. I didn't hear you come in. Where are we going on such short notice? Mexico. Why? The newspapers have got hold of Gilbert's case. By tomorrow morning, all the filth in that man's life will become public gossip, and I don't want to face it. Of course. But why must we go tonight? Because I decided. Now, let's pack. We've very little time. I... I can't go, Oliver. What? Now, look here, Tamsin. Now, please listen to me. I can't leave Julie. She needs me. Oh, she'll get along. You don't know how she carried on tonight after you went out. It, it wouldn't be fair to desert her at a time like this. But I... Oh, well... All right, I'll phone the airport for another reservation. Uh, no, no, Oliver. Julie needs time to organize herself. She's had a terrible shock. Why don't you go alone, and we'll join you in a few days? Well... You won't have to face the publicity, and I'll have a chance to, to help Julie. Yes. Yes, very well. I can wait for you at, uh, at the Continental Hotel in Mexico City, and from there we can go on to... That's a good idea, Tanton. Uh, will you phone the airport and cancel your reservation while I go upstairs and pack? Of course, darling. Hello? Police headquarters? Inspector McKee, please. Inspector McKee? Uh, this is Tamson Galt. Um, I came home a few minutes ago and I found that my husband has disappeared. Yes. Two of his suitcases are gone. Well, I phoned the airport and I was told that he'd made a reservation on the midnight plane for him and me. Well, I don't know why he included me, but... No. No, I didn't cancel it. I, I didn't want Oliver to become suspicious. Yes. You're quite welcome. Goodbye. Benson, you just made a serious blunder. Oliver. You should have called the airport first. Now Inspector McKee will know that you were lying. Oliver. 
Put down that candle. It was all worked out on your precious little mind, wasn't it? Julie needed care, loving care. I didn't mean it, Oliver. I, I, I'll call the inspector. I, I'll it's tell him. It's too late, Samson. Would you like to know how much I really loved Oliver, you? Oliver, please. Please give me a chance. As much as I hate you now. <laughs> you won't kill me. Somebody's listening on this phone now. Oliver. Oliver, no. Yes, Samson. No. Yes. Hello? Hello? Oh, I'm tired, Cassidy. It's been a long day. Sure, but wouldn't you be feeling good enough now to eat that sandwich, I bought for your good appetite? Oliver Galt, big utilities man, making a getaway. Every day, a new surprise. <laughs> Won't he be getting one when he finds the airport loaded down with cops? Mm. <laughs> yes? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Are you sure? You've got to be sure. Okay. What's the trouble, sir, if you don't mind me asking? Those fingerprints we found on the doorknob of Shannon's apartment, Cassidy. They ain't good. They belong to a John Revillo. I don't recall no such name, sir. The San Diego confidence man arrested 21 years ago, broke jail six months later, was never found. Well, well, that sort of changes the picture, don't it? Very low. Could that be a Spanish name? I don't know. On the other hand, it's possible that a fellow who calls himself John Smith and laughs at the church funeral might... Yeah, yeah, anything's possible now. Inspector McKee, homicide. <laughs> Cassidy, Christ. Yes, sir. I want, uh... That's a joke, mister. We meet again, Inspector, and again it's bad news. Uh, tell me about it. You know who this is? A ghost of Gilbert Shannon. <laughs> a toast to the wise. Death begets death. And when it's murder, there can be no end except in death. What's that? It's happened again. But now it's a beautiful lady. Young, charming. Who was it? Tamsin Gott. What? A horror of horrors to be snuffed out in the prime of life. Now, listen, you, if this is a gag, Goodbye, I want Goodbye, to... Inspector. I assume your next stop will be the Galt Mansion on East 54th Street, which is now a tomb. Cassidy. Cassidy. Uh, I was on my way, Inspector. Uh, that car was made from Booth near the Galt House. And Never mind that. Pick up Smith and hold him here until I get back, if I ever do. <laughs> Keep talking, Miss Shannon. I've got work to do. Well, I didn't know what had happened until he came to the house, Inspector McKee. Santos tomorrow brought me home, and I went straight up to my room. Where'd he go? He left me at the front door, Inspector. Well, all right. I'm satisfied. I uh, think we'll wrap up this candle holder now. The fingerprints on it should tell us who struck the first blow. The first? Yes. Samson Galt was not killed by a blow on the head. She was smothered to death. Good heavens. By someone who held her nose and mouth while she was unconscious. But uh, how, how can you tell? Those swollen veins in her neck and the color of her face. How dreadful. But who? Anybody. It didn't require courage or strength. I see. What about Oliver? Huh? How do you mention him? He might have found out that Santos and Tamsin were... Well... Oh, one of those things, huh? Did your father know about them, too? He must have. The hammer he was killed with was taken out of this house. Oh, thank you. Why didn't you talk about it sooner? I didn't know until a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. I went to the second floor closet to look for something, and I found that... 
We have him company. Captain. Captain. That's all of us. Perfect. Meet him in the hall and don't tell him what happened. Don't? Go ahead and do as I say. All right, Inspector. And leave that door open. I want to hear everything. Oliver? Hey, Julie. I'm just going upstairs. Where's Tamsin? Oh, uh, she, she's indisposed. Indisposed? I just don't understand that woman. An hour ago, she wanted to fly to Mexico tonight. Mexico? What are you talking about? I rushed down to my office to get these papers. I thought I'd combine pleasure with business. And now, uh, is she upstairs? No, Mr. Gold. What? She's waiting for you in the living room. Inspector McKee. Would you like to see her? Of course you would. Now, come on. After you've had a good look, we'll take a trip downtown to police headquarters. And you too, Miss Shannon. If you like. I like. And while we're driving, we'll pick up Mr. DeMora and give him a lift, too. Santos? But why? Your alibi, Miss Shannon. And to you, Mr. Gold, a mathematical problem. The outside angle of a triangle. Excuse me, Inspector. What is it, Catherine? I just got the report on this candle holder. No fingerprints. It was wiped clean. All right. Stay here with Smith. I'm going into the next room to pin down a murderer. Uh, Inspector, I'd appreciate a drink if you have one. Great, great. Give him one, Cassidy, from that water cooler. No, not that. I need something. Well, Inspector McKee, are you ready for us? For one of you, Miss Shannon, an escaped convict by the name of John Revillo. What's the matter? You struck down? What about it, Mr. DeMora? Would you like to enlighten me? I have never heard of the gentleman. Hmm. How about you, Mr. Gold? I don't know him. I don't recall ever having met him. Well, then, suppose I give you people an assist. Here's an ink pad. We'll take some fingerprints. Who'll be the uh, first volunteer? You, Mr. Gold? Well? All right. I'm John Revillo. Oliver! But I didn't commit murder. You yourself told me that Tamsin was smothered. But you made it possible by cracking a skull. I had no choice. We quarreled. She flew into temper and picked up a knife. You can do better than that. First, what about Gilbert Shannon? I thought he was blackmailing me. He was the only one who knew my real identity. I went to his apartment this afternoon for a showdown. Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you that because... Well, because Gilbert was already dead when I found him. I was afraid. My criminal record, you know. I know. But I also know that Shannon was not blackmailing you. What? Just a minute. Smith, come in here. When the law beckons... And uh, put your hat on. Spoken like an old friend. That's the man. I paid him the money. Paid? You paid me? It's all right, Smith. You can relax. But I told you, Inspector, I was the bait the spider used to lure the fly in. When I saw them today in church, sitting side by side like Damon and Phyllis, I... Uh, Inspector McKee. Huh? Uh, what uh, is it, Mr. DeMora? Uh, could uh, I have a glass of water, please? Oh, sure. But first, give me what you have in your hand. You have no right to... We'll talk about that some other time. Huh. Pills, huh? Poison. Sit down, Mr. DeMora. It's your turn to talk now about a double murder, and no double talk, if you know what I mean. <laughs> just can't believe it. Santos de Mora, of all people. Your father's oldest friend. Know thine enemies, but beware of thy friends. And Oliver, an escaped convict. 
Well, I knew that Dad had met Oliver in San Diego. He didn't I... meet him, Miss Shannon. He helped put him in jail. Your father was one of those energetic newspaper reporters who liked to play detective, too. But Dad married Oliver's sister. Yes, one of those things you never understand. Got the whole story from Smith. He was Gilbert Shannon's editor. Then he knew. Yes, but liquor and hard luck put a cloud on his mind. So when he met Oliver Galt after 20 years, he didn't recognize him as John Ravillo. And he collected the blackmail money and turned it over to Santa Samora. For a whiskey pittance. Smith had to have whiskey. Inspector, how did Santos find out about Oliver? Demora told me he got it from your father during a moment of whiskey weakness. But why did he kill him? For protection. Your father was the only one who knew Oliver's past. But Demora was blackmailing him. But why did he kill Tamsin? Oh, to frame you, my dear, for both murders. What? You quarreled with Tamsin in a restaurant. Demora was present. He told you about that, too? Mm-hmm. Well... He's very clever, I must say. Mm. How did he get into the house? I left him at the front door. He unlatched it while you were saying goodnight. Oh. Well, that explains everything. Just a minute. Calling Inspector McKee. Calling Inspector McKee. Oh, what now? Hmm? Another murder? What is it? Excuse me, sir. This is Cassidy. Mm. There's a question that's playing on me mind. And if you'd be good enough to answer it. Sure, sure. Anything to go home and go to bed. Well, sir, it's about them telephone calls that Smith not made to your office about their murders. Why did he do it? An old newspaper man and a lunatic. He couldn't resist the scoop. But how could he know about them, Inspector? Very simple, Cassidy. He was in the right place at the wrong time. Yes, but I... Uh, good night. Good night, Cassidy. Stop worrying about trifles. The case is closed. And so closes tonight's Crime Club book, Mr. Smith's Hat, based on a story by Helen Riley. Stedman Coles did the radio adaptation. Roger Bauer produced and directed. Inspector McKee was played by Raymond Edward Johnson and Julie by Elaine Kent. The cast included... William Podmore, Eleanor Phelps, Paul Hammond, Sherling Oliver, and Barry Thompson. Oh, I beg your pardon. Hello? I hope I haven't kept you waiting. Yes, this is the crime club. I'm the librarian. Yes, come over a week from tonight. Good, we have a very unusual story of a charity ball at which the principal gift was death. It's called Murder Goes Astray by M.V. Hebbiden. In the meantime, well, in the meantime, there is a new Crime Club book available this week and every week at bookstores everywhere. Yes, it's available now. Fine. And we look for you next week. And by the way, the next time you sit down to enjoy a good show... Think of the million and a half men who are trying to win the peace throughout the world. And yes, think of the 199,000 who helped win the war and are still in the hospitals. They like a good show, too. So keep them going with good USO entertainment. They still need USO, and USO is you. This program came from New York. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System.